This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Like all public radio stations, WDFH depends on financial support from our listeners. Please visit WDFH.org and click on Donate to make your tax-deductible gift. Shows like this can't be done without your support. Thanks, and now, Outcasting. Historically, trans people have been around since the beginning of, of mankind. If you look at Native Americans as an example, there were many, many transgender people within tribes, and they would usually be celebrated as the shamans of the tribe. As with any community, there are people within our community that could help the world be a better world. If we spend time constantly crushing people, holding them back, discriminating against them, and hating them, they'll spend all their life fighting the discrimination and the hate, or possibly succumb to it, rather than to give our culture and our world whatever gifts they have to give to move the whole world forward. This is Outcasting, the Lower Hudson River Valley's only youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles and triumphs, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Westchester Public Radio, WDFH-FM 90.3 in Ossining, New York, and on the net at WDFH.org. Hi, I'm Chris. On this edition of Outcasting, David and Morgan talk with the transgender activist Julie Gray Owens. Julie is a Long Island and New York State transgender community advocate. She is a board member of the Empire State Pride Agenda, the New York State LGBT Advocacy Organization, chair of the GLBT Democrats of Long Island, and a member of the Suffolk County Democratic Party Executive Committee. This is part two of a two-part interview. Thank you for joining us, Julie. Thank you uh, for having me. Yeah, I've seen on TV like a few times, there was a special that included a story about someone who'd transitioned from male to female and then back to male again. And that kind of reminds me of some people rush into transitioning when maybe they're not ready or maybe they shouldn't for like whatever reasons. When I do transgender conferences, one of the things that I try to make it clear is, is that there's no right way to be transgendered. Many people think that when you are transgendered, you need to go from point A directly to point Z, meaning you have to have surgery, you have to go on hormones, you have to, you know, completely, you know, if, you have, if you're married, you have to divorce your wife because you're a woman now, you can't possibly have a wife except in some of the states that we have, uh, you know, marriage equality. The reality is, is that I think, uh, and one of the messages that I try to tell people is, is that there's no correct way to be transgendered. There's no checklist for being, you know, for having a happy transgendered life. The the real key here is is to find where you belong. I stress to especially young trans people the fact that there is no need to rush into anything. What you need to do is first of all be comfortable. Usually the the, the whole thing about transition, I I usually use as a a, a metaphor for like a, a railroad, you know, a train. And let's say from point A to point Z, Z being, you know, complete uh, surgery, hormones. I mean, you are just, you have completely turned your life around. You are a completely, you are, if you're a man, you are now a woman. If you are a woman, you are now a man, you know, type of situation. I'm not sure that that's something that everybody needs to do. And I know I don't need to do that. I think that people need to, just as you would on a train, you get off at, like, let's say the first stop and decide whether this is the right town for you to be in. And if it isn't, you can always get on the train again and take the next, go to the next town if that's necessary. 
but you don't need to automatically go from, from zero to complete surgery and everything else. So what do you think about the year-long living as your gender identity requirement before that part of a transition if you want that? Well, I think it's necessary. I think it's a, I think it's a good idea. I mean, um, without having the opportunity to live that life. Now, remember, my life would not, would not work because I still work as a man. So I could not, for example, after a year, and it's been longer than a year, but after a year, I couldn't say, okay, it's time for me to have surgery because I am not working as a woman. So when you talk about a full transition and living your life, that means everything. That means your work. That means your play. That means your church. That means your family. That means going out shopping. That means going out and looking for a new car or getting your car repaired. So again, these are things that you know, um, especially if you start out as a, um, in my case, a, an, an educated white man, to now have to go in and get your car repaired and have someone try to explain to you, okay, now you really probably don't understand this because you're a woman, you know. Well, that's that's part of it, all right? And, and that's one of the reasons why I'm really all not all that comfortable with worrying about, you know, going through a full transition. When a group of trans people will get together, they'll always say this one question. If there was a magic pill... And you took the magic pill, and you would no longer be transgendered. Would you take the pill? And probably for the past six or seven years, I can honestly say that I'm at a stage now where I would not take the pill. Because the beauty of not only having the childhood that I had and the lessons that I learned as a man, and the beauty that I have in my life, and the things that I've learned as a trans woman, I, those are things that I would not give up. So I would, I'd flip the pill. I wouldn't take it. Uh, how has your wife been handling your dual genderedness, for lack of a better word? She handles it greatly. Um, this is my second wife, and uh, I met my second wife at church as Julie. And uh, at the time when I met her, um, I was under the impression that she was happily married. And um, she was under the impression that I was happily married. And uh, so uh, we met and, and actually became good girlfriends. As we got to know each other more and more, we realized, at least I realized, that um, she was preparing to get a divorce and that I was in a, in a marriage that was not going well. And so as a result, what ended up happening was at some point I said to her, um, you know, uh, I have this, this guy I'd like you to meet. And uh, initially, she thought I might even be setting her up with someone that she didn't know. And she was like, uh, well, what's his name? And I said, well, it's, it's Terry. So we, we laughed a little bit. And uh, we actually had our first date as Terry and Barbara. And um, had a wonderful evening. And the beauty of that relationship started out with her knowing Julie first. So there was no question about being transgendered. There was no question about you know, gender or, or issues about, you know, what did this make her or, or anything like that. And, and of course, the joke always is, is that she was obviously a straight woman. Now she has married a, a, a trans woman. So people want to know, like, well, have you become a lesbian? And the reality is, is of course not. She's a straight woman. But um, she's adapted so well to it. Um, and again, it's, I think, because of the fact that, um, she met Julie to start with. Now, this is in direct conflict 
with what happened with my first wife. Um, I met my first wife when we were 14 years old. And um, we started going out when we were 16. Uh, we went to the prom together. She did go out with the football, captain of the football team <laughs> <laughs> at the prom. But um, we went together all through college. Probably a year after we graduated, she moved in and we lived together for about eight years. Uh, we got married when we were 30, started our own business at, at one point. At what, 31, I think it was. We had our, our daughter at 35. And she knew about me being transgendered, I think, while we were in college, probably when I was about 20 years old. And it was a little bit of a shock, but it was, she always felt that it was our secret and, and that's the way it was handled. As I got older, however, it became more and more and more harder for me to be able to stay inside the house and not be a real person. You know, just kind of cross-dress off to the side type of thing. And as I got more involved in my advocacy work, she liked it less and less and less. And she always viewed Julie as, as like another woman entering our marriage, which was a problem, which kind of is the opposite of what my second wife sees as, as you know, because she, she met Julie. Julie was the starting point. And she sees Terry as just a a nice addition to the relationship type of thing. So it's interesting how the two relationships differed. You know, one starting very early. And again, I wasn't even sure in those days we were unclear as to what I even was. But eventually being transgendered had a major impact on our, on our marriage. And it got to a point where uh, we needed to get a divorce. We're still good friends. My first wife is very aware of the fact of the advocacy work that I'm doing. Um, she is, um, you know, supportive. Uh, my daughter is uh, extremely supportive um, and is very loving and very uh, involved in the community. In fact, she's actually come out as a lesbian, and she's, uh, she's pretty amazing. It's just interesting to me how the two relationships, my two wives, have differed. One, knowing Julie to start with and being very comfortable with me being transgendered. One, knowing very early on, I mean, again, we um, were almost married 25 years. So certainly it was a period of time that, you know, she was fully aware of who I was and, and what I was, but we were never able to define it. And we didn't understand how, how it was going to grow as I got older. One of the things I've learned is, is that, you know, marriage is a, a path that you walk with someone who wants to walk with you as long as the path is the same. And at some point, sometimes the paths veer and the people have to separate. You said that your first wife uh, knew that you were transgender for um, a, a long time. Mm. Um, when did you first come out and what was that experience like? When you say coming out. It doesn't necessarily have to be like, ta-da, I'm out, you know, type of thing. <laughs> Throughout college, I did a little experimenting and, you know, would kind of sneak out occasionally. But once I graduated college, there was an opportunity now to have a little bit of money and, and everything. And part of this story I think is kind of interesting is that um, when I first um, got out of college, the first thing I did was I went to uh, – I happened to uh, read a village voice – Back in the day, it was a Village Voice was a you know a weekly newspaper um, out of basically Greenwich Village, and on the back page there would be all kinds of like support groups and this and that. And I happened to see a support group for 
what was listed as uh, cross-dressers. I don't even think they used the word transgender at the time because I don't think people were using the word transgender yet. And it was being run by a uh, psychologist in uh, upstate New York. And I went to visit him because I was, you know, now I had a job and I figured I could go to see him and I could get cured and I could then go on with the rest of my life. He was the first person to tell me that this was not something that was quote-unquote curable. I mean, it's probably very similar to to uh, gays and lesbians that have been told they can be cured of their gay and lesbianism. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, we are who we are. But he gave me some really great advice, which is that um, this is something that I would be dealing with for the rest of my life. It was not going to go away. It was not a bad thing or anything, but it was just something that I had to understand that it was a part of me, and it was not something that he or anyone else could cure. It's funny because inside of me at one point, there was a little bit like, oh, darn, I, you know, I'll never be all guy. And on the other side, there was a feeling of like, okay, so this is who I can be. It actually allowed me to finally not deal with this constant struggle of, of who I needed to be, but rather just be me and figure out how this world could work with this life the way it is. Why was it that you wanted to be cured? I think it was um, not so much that I wanted to be cured, but I wanted to be, shall we say, normal. Because there's, I think, a drive for all of us to, to be able to join the flock. Also remember, especially when I got out of college, it was late 70s, early 80s, it was still very much not an accepted situation to be transgendered. I mean, it isn't now, but it certainly was a lot worse in those days. There was just no understanding. It was you were totally wacko. There was something wrong with you. Today, people will still say that, but there is a, a growing knowledge that this is a, a real issue that people need to understand and, and support. There are, I believe it is, what is it, 16 states in the District of Columbia that have now got uh, transgender civil rights laws on the books. I mean, this would have never been something that we could have expected back in the 70s or 80s. We are listening to the second part of a two-part interview with Julie Gray Owens, a transgender activist here on Outcasting. Julie is active in the Long Island Transgender Day of Remembrance Committee, as well as the Long Island Transgender Advocacy Coalition. Julie, earlier you talked about how you tried on the shoes and something just clicked for you. Were there any other moments um, later on in life that were similar to that? I actually have to say that um, I can't think of anything that has been really, you know, earth-shattering as far as, as, as those moments go. Um, it's been more of a, you know, little step at a time, little step at a time. The work that I've done as a transgender activist, though, because that's probably been where I've gotten a, an awful lot of satisfaction, self-satisfaction, in knowing that I'm, I'm making changes and that things are happening. For example, I'm, I'm a member of the... Um, well, actually, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Democrat on Long Island. I'm vice chair of the uh, Gay and Lesbian Democrats, the GLBT Democrats of Long Island. But I also uh, serve on the executive board of the uh, Suffolk County Democratic Party. The fact that I can be in what I consider to be, I'll call it, you know, with, with uh, quotations around it, you know, the gender straight world, where just everyday people are dealing with me, knowing that I'm transgender, but also looking at me with, um, with respect, with a certain naturalism, you know, just, just being natural around people and not feeling, oh, I have to be a certain way. And they're not reading 
anything from me other than just being a normal person. I felt really good about that, and, and that's been something that I've, I've really enjoyed. And as I've gone on, especially the past, I don't know, uh, four or five years with my second wife, I do everything as Julie now except my work. You said you were part of the GLBT Democrats of Long Island. How do you do your advocacy work through them? Like, you know, is it rallies or petitions or what is it that you do with them? When I first came out and, and was serious about starting to do um, advocacy work, uh, there were no trans people in the um, GLBT Dems of Suffolk County. At the time, they were just doing Suffolk County. And um, I thought it was a great opportunity to start having our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters know a little bit more about trans people. And so I started attending meetings, started realizing that I could change the way people saw things or bring, bring issues to the table that no one else had ever brought issues to the table before. There are many trans people that are, shall we say, homophobic. They really are not like they, they don't want to be part of the, the GLB world, if you will. And I'm very comfortable in it. So as a result, when, when they need someone to, to help talk about, for example, before marriage equality was passed, I was there. Because I always felt that if I worked on their issues, that they would work on my issues. And so as a result, I've um, been seen holding marriage equality signs, marching at the Pride Parade, um, which I have no problem in doing. I have done uh, a lot of marriage equality work um, with the uh, Empire State Pride Agenda Board. I have given speeches on marriage equality. So I'm very comfortable with you know the marriage equality issues and any other issues that, that come up for the LGB community because, again, they're a minority and they're fighting for rights as well. I often wonder what the world's going to be like when all our fighting for our issues are done. What will I do next? And it'll probably be to look for another minority that needs some help, you know, and, and see if I can't help them. As a result of helping the LGBs in marriage equality and some of the other issues that, that we've dealt with, there has been a respect that I've been given. And as a result, I can pretty much dial up many gay and lesbian friends to help support me in the trans work that needs to be done. Because again, the trans community is much smaller than the LGB community, and we need them to help us, give us numbers, give us voice, give us money in order to be able to do the work that we have to do. Transgender people, not only from a standpoint of being a very small community, uh, most of our members are not even out. I mean, you could probably compare the transgender community to perhaps where the gay community was in the 60s. I mean, there's never been really a, a stonewall for transgender people. We go along with it. We're a part of it. But there, that was the beginning of what I'll, we'll call gay rights. But there has never really been a turning point for transgender rights. And we've actually seen this in New York, the what they call the Sonda Bill, which was the uh, Sexual Orientation Non-Discrimination Act, which was passed in 2002. Trans people were taken out of the bill so that the bill could be passed. So in 2002, the bill was passed, and it protects, again, as we talked about, housing, employment, and public accommodations for 
lesbians, gays, and bisexuals. So you, you know, someone who is who is a, a lesbian or gay cannot be discriminated against in housing or employment or, for that matter, public access. However, trans people still can because the the verbiage that was should have been in the bill to protect us back in 2002 was removed. And at that point in time, we were promised, don't worry, we'll, we'll get our bill and then we're going to get yours. Well, we're still begging for our rights. We're a small community. We need help. And um, many of my friends who are gay and lesbian and bisexual have been very helpful, uh, especially on Long Island. So I, I think that um, I'm glad I did what I did. I'm glad that I got involved because it's, it's increased, um, I don't want to say my power, but my effectiveness because I now have access to people and money that I didn't have before. How do you think gay, lesbian, and bisexual people can better support and be educated about transgender rights? I think that what they really need to do first is forget about transgender rights. I think they need to, to understand transgender people. One of the most surprising things that I found, especially when I first came out and first started saying, you know what, there's no trans presence here, let me become one. Um, and that wasn't just politically, that was socially, that was at our uh, Long Island Center. Most LGB people really don't know anything about transgender people. I mean, I always thought coming out that, you know, gays and lesbians understood us. They know nothing more than than straight people know. I mean, there's there's really, it's really amazing. But it's also understandable because not a lot of trans people are out, not a lot of trans people are talking, and only recently has there really been a, a surge of information about transgender people. You know, uh, Barbara Walters did a special, Oprah Winfrey has, has done a number of things, but it's never been as out as it is now, and hopefully it'll become more out so that we can really end discrimination and so forth. But I think LGB people have to know more about trans people, be willing to understand and be willing to support us. There's always a question of, well, why is there the T in LGBT? Because they're different than us. And people are right. We are different. You know, it's, it, when you're transgendered, it's not about who you love. It's about who you are. But the reality is, is that we're facing the same issues, um, discrimination. We're facing the same hatred. We're facing the same people holding us down, pushing us away from the table, not allowing us to live our lives. It's the same exact people. It makes a lot of sense to be able to work together as a full community, the LGBT community, and move forward that way. On the other side, why do you think there are some transgender people who are homophobic? I think that... Um, I think that's a normal way that people are. They're, they're always, they always need someone to uh, look down on or because someone is different or whatever. And also, um, probably those same people are extremely closeted so that they're not around lesbians and gays. So as a result, um, they're very sheltered in their ideas and, and their experiences. I know that, um, and I can think back to a time when I was extremely young where I was, I was nervous about being around gays or lesbians. But let me tell you, um, my wife and I, we celebrate the community that we're in. I can't tell you the, the, the beautiful people that we have met, that we have been friends with. It's just, it's been phenomenal. 
that's probably the truth about any two groups or two communities that are phobic with each other. Once you get to know, I, I think I think Abraham Lincoln had something that there was a quote that he said uh, something like, um, "See that man over there? Uh, I don't much like him. I need to get to know him better." He had the wisdom to realize that something wasn't rubbing him right, but the reality was is that if he got to know the guy, he probably would have a much better understanding of who that person was and would probably find some things to like about that person. And I, and I think that's just the reality of, of humans and who we are and what we are. We need to get to know people. And that's one of our biggest issues for being transgendered is, is that so many people are in the closet, so many people are not telling their stories that no one knows that we even exist. It's very hard a lot of times to go to anything and be the only trans person there. But what I find is it also gives me strength because after a while, people are just like, okay, yeah, I get it. What would you say about the transgender community being sometimes thought of as the forgotten cousin to the LGBT community? Well, it's similar to what we've been talking about. And yes, it, 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 we're, the, we're the forgotten community, period. Forget about cousins. We're just forgotten. But part of that is our size, which hurts us. But a larger part of it is the fact that there's so much fear in our community that people are afraid to come out, and that has a, that has a big impact on it. You know, you have to understand, historically, trans people have been around since the beginning of, of mankind. If you look at Native Americans as an example— there were many, many transgender people within tribes, and they would usually be celebrated as the shamans of the tribe, which meant that they had, they had special powers. And, and being trans, you actually do have special powers because they call them two-spirit people. And truly, um, you can't get much closer than, than to have a gender which is different than your, your physical sex. You know, you, you, you have the ability to see a lot more things than I think people who are in a very parallel universe, if you will. Is there anything else you'd like for someone who doesn't know a lot about trans people to know about trans people? Yes, I, I, but I think they're basic lessons. I think that, first of all, understand that we're just human beings. That's number one. Number two, understand that I would say we're as surprised about this as you are. I mean, when you really think about this logically, you go, what? But that doesn't change the fact of how we feel about it. And that's why, you know, when I talk about it being so natural to, to feel the way I feel and to want to be Julie, that it's just so natural to me. And again, it's like whether it's like bears hibernating or, you know, fish swimming upstream or whatever it happens to be, it's just who we are. And we're not looking to hurt anyone. We're not looking to do anything other than to live our life and live our life happily. And I believe that, as with any community, there are people within our community that could help the world be a better world for whatever, in whatever way it would be, whether it's music, art, you know, literature, whether it's politics, whether it's inventions. It doesn't really matter. But if we spend time constantly crushing people, holding them back, discriminating against them, and hating them, they'll spend all their life fighting the discrimination and the hate, or possibly succumb to it, rather than to give our culture and our world whatever gifts they have to give 
to move the whole world forward. So I would say that um, the message is, we're just like you. Please try to understand us. Try to learn to love us and allow us to uh, rightfully take our place in our community. Julie, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you both so much. That's the transgender activist Julie Gray Owens talking with David and Morgan in the second part of a two-part interview. Julie is a Long Island and New York State transgender community advocate. She is a board member of the Empire State Pride Agenda, the New York State LGBT Advocacy Organization, chair of the GLBT Democrats of Long Island, and a member of the Suffolk County Democratic Party Executive Committee. The first part of this interview is available in the archive at WDFH.org. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, the lower Hudson River Valley's only youth-run radio show dealing with LGBTQ struggles and triumphs, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Westchester Public Radio, WDFH-FM 90.3, in Austining, New York, and on the net at WDFH.org. For more information on this program and a list of resources, visit us at WDFH.org and click on Outcasting. I'm Chris. Thanks for joining us, and tune in again next time. If you enjoyed this program, please make a tax-deductible gift to WDFH. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit WDFH.org and click on Donate. Thanks.